we continue with the ministry of God's Word, we take up where we left off last week in Moses' record of the Exodus. The five books of Moses are remarkable in that Moses begins with things that took place before man was created. And yet God revealed to him those days of creation. But we find ourselves now in a book that uh, Moses plays a very central role, raised up by God to lead the people of God. Uh, Surely you'll remember the earlier chapters with Moses' great reluctance. And already we've seen that Moses has grown and he continues to grow by the Lord's Spirit working in him. And it's really at this point we really start to see Moses um, demonstrate that growth that God is bringing about in him as a useful vessel of our Lord. We're going to start our reading in chapter 13, verse 17. As this is the word of God and not the word of man, let us stand together before the Lord. Because we come under the word of our God, it is authoritative and powerful, and let us hear it. Not as the word of man, but as it is, the inspired word of the living God, our God and Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a short passage this morning, 17 through 22. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, Surely, or God surely will visit you. And you shall carry up my bones from here with you. So they took their journey from Succoth, and they camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night, from before the people. Thus far, the word of God, let us pray. Almighty God, our Father, we do rejoice that as the God who has spoken through holy men of old, that you have spoken your word, and it is a profitable word, given for the instruction of your people down through many generations. Lord, as we uh, have this privilege to be under your word of a an account that took place so long ago, uh, an account that in some sense seems to be a a historical record, and yet as we saw so recently in our working through 1 Corinthians, we've been reminded that these things, that is the things written of old, of the the children of Israel of old, the church in its infancy, they they were written for our instruction, and Lord, as we look now at these verses, we do pray that by your word and spirit you would instruct us and that indeed this instruction would be profitable 
it would be encouraging uh, that we would see uh, Christ in the passage, that we would see, yea, even the Holy Spirit. For you are a God who is triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes and open our ears. Loose the lips of a frail, sinful man whom you've appointed to be uh, your candlestick in this place and using that he would sound forth the words of truth, all for the praise, glory, and honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him be magnified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've all come from different walks this week. For myself, uh, in just the last maybe 10 days or so, I've lost a stepbrother to cancer. Um, I lost my stepmother, who was a mother to me longer than the mother who bore me. Um, we experience these losses. Uh, we have events happen in our personal lives and, and relationships. But then we, we read the headlines. I don't know how you read the headlines. Most people don't get newspapers anymore, but perhaps you watch the nightly news or maybe you get your news from some online source, a, a social media site, some email news feed. It doesn't really matter, does it? The majority of the news stories from the past week or even the past month, it's worse than the majority of the news headlines from every source for, for quite some time. Uh, the headlines have been heavy, hard to hear. They're, they're troubling. Uh, they would uh, stir up with us questions and, and wondering about things. It's hard to take it all in. And we think about the events that are unfolding. What are the impact upon our lives right now? Uh, the, the lives of our children uh, in future years, even our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. We think about perhaps bank accounts and retirements. Sometimes we might even wonder, will this nation that we live in, that we call home, will it survive? Sobering realities. Well, this morning, to borrow from Luke's gospel... And from angelic messengers, I bring you tidings of great joy this morning. Yes, I bring you good tidings of great joy. The Lord, our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and our Father, and the Holy Spirit are with us. They are alive. We are not alone. We are not forsaken. Always and forevermore they are with us. Amen. And we will never be without them. As the promise of Christ uh, before his ascension, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Period. As the Brits would say. Full stop. That's truth. And it's a truth that we should have, as it were, in some sense, lenses as we look at the events in our individual private lives, the events around us in the community, the headlines. God is with us. And, you know, this is not something new. 
God has always been with his people. That's one of the things that really stands out in the passage before us. We'll see that from the text this morning. You see in our main headings as they're printed in your worship guide that focuses, as I've often uh, made the points to be in recent sermons, they're about the Lord. And I would just want to remember, you see, I've used the all capitals, L-O-R-D, and just remind you that speaks of God's name. When God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, and he said, who should I tell your people that sends me? And he says, I am. And it is, you know, the, the Hebrew Yahweh, uh, often translated Jehovah. But when we look at the scriptures, we come to understand, what does this name mean? It means that I am the covenant faithful Lord. And he is our covenant, faithful Lord today, every day, every moment of every day, in every circumstance. My friends, that is tidings of good news. This is tidings of great joy. Our God is the Lord, and he is ever covenant faithful. And so we want to consider that the Lord knew his people. The Lord led his people in orderly ranks. It's just a brief verse and part of a verse, and yet it's really quite remarkable. The Lord led his people to also keep an old oath made hundreds of years before. And then finally, and more significantly in this passage, the Lord made his presence visible to his people. So we begin with, the Lord knew his people. A few weeks ago we heard how Pharaoh drove Israel out of the land of Egypt. The, the final plague, the destroying angel that went through the land and struck the firstborn in every house that had no blood upon the doorpost. And in Exodus 12:37, we're told that they departed. Pharaoh, who had resisted them, drove them out then. And, and the, Israel, the Egyptians encouraged them to go and, and give them great gifts, things of tremendous value. Whatever they asked of them, uh, they literally went out with wagons and carts filled with the wealth of Egypt. And they were told in verse 37 of the previous chapter, they departed from Ramses, which was in the eastern region of Goshen, the, the river Nile as it opened up in the, uh, to flow into the sea. That's Goshen. That is where the Israelites had lived for the last 435 years. This is where they were settled. It was the main settlement of the Hebrews. And it's from this location they left. And what's interesting um, the geography of that place that uh, if some sense I want you to think about you know the Nile flowing down to the delta and here's the Mediterranean Sea and and there was a trade route that just right from that point where Israel is just a little off to the east when there's a major trade route we're told that it was 12 kilometers wide I mean that's that's you know not quite 10 miles but it's a wide path and it's a trade route that goes in very short order up into the land of the Philistines uh, to the land of Canaan the land God promised to Abraham it was right there and God leads them out and this would have been the shortest way to the promised land but what do we read in verse 17 and it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although it was near, and it was near. For God said, lest perhaps 
when the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines. Uh, God did not take them by the short route. Why, why not? Why would he not do that? Children, think about it this way. Children, you know, I want to try to keep you engaged. I want you to think about this. So imagine, children, you're going on vacation. And your dad says, there's a short route to the, the cabin or the campsite, wherever you're going. Um, and he says, it'll only take us two hours to drive to get there. But your father says, our trip's going to take us a bit longer. We're taking a different route. It will take us two days to get to our vacation spot. At that point, you children might be saying, has, has dad lost his marbles? You know, two hours or, or two days. What and what in the world is Dad thinking? He might wonder, and and probably would have some reason to wonder about it. But Moses tells us this is what God did. Instead of a, a short route, he he takes them further to the east and southeast, a longer route. And as we're going to see as we move forward, a, a, a very long route. But God had a reason. And Moses records it. God has revealed to Moses why. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds. And what might change their minds? What might change their minds is that they would see war. In short orders, they head up into this region of the Philistines. Remember, this is a host of millions. And they've got wagons and they've got carts, and, and there's a host of livestock. And imagine you're the Philistines, and you got scouts on the border, and the word comes back to the king, a great horde is coming out of Egypt. And for what reason, we don't know. They're, they're more numerous than we are, and they would prepare for war, and they would come down to meet them. And God knew his people, and so he did not take them on that short route. Why? Look again at verse 17. He said, lest perhaps the people change their mind when they see war. God understands the Philistines will come out in war against them. And that this would be overwhelming to the Israelites. The Israelites, they don't know about war. Think about it. There are different sort of people than a settled people. I was thinking as uh, I was looking at this text, and many of you hopefully remember when we were in John 2, um, Jesus has gone to the wedding feast in Canaan, and he's taken and turned water into probably the best wine ever made. And and then during the feast of the Passover, you know, he, he cleanses the temple, and he's there at the feast of the Passover, and Jesus is teaching the people but John records this significant statement, and he was doing signs. And then John said, in, in one first glance, somebody said, well, this is good. They were believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Sounds positive, right? But John goes on to record that Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in all men. These people believed in him. If you'll remember when we preached on this, they believed he was a miracle worker. 
They believed he was capable of doing signs. It wasn't that they believed this is their Messiah, that this is the suffering servant that Isaiah has told about, that this is the one who has come to save us from our sins. They didn't believe that. So Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of the man. We come back to our text and we see God, the same God, knew what was in the heart of his people. God knew his covenant people. And he knew for them at this point to face war would be too much for them. The Israelites have just been serving as slaves. What does a slave do? He does as he's told what to do. What does a slave know about warfare? Nothing. I mean, the, the, the slaveholders, the nation of Egypt, they, they don't want the Israelites to understand about warfare. They don't want them to understand how to handle weapons of warfare. They don't want them to know or anything about how to organize into troops and have a commander and someone with military tactics to, to, to teach them and to command them. That would be the threat. That was the reason that the Pharaoh some time ago said, we need to drown all the baby boys. They were terrified of that very prospect. And so Israel doesn't know about warfare. And God knows that if they head up that way, they're going to face warfare. And he knew what was in their heart. And they would say, well, let's just go back to Egypt. God knew what was in the heart of his people. So the Lord sent them a different direction. The Lord knew that once they had come out of Egypt, they had lessons to learn, many lessons to learn. Children, I want you to think about this yourself. Some of you are old enough now that, that you, you can realize, some of you older children will say you're you know, seven, eight, nine, maybe six even, that, that uh, you, you're old enough that you can think back that I did some pretty foolish things when I was younger. You know, things I wouldn't do now. I, I, I've got better sense. I've learned some things as I've grown up. And some of you who are, you know, on the brink of being teens or uh, even are entering into that part of your life where you're moving out of childhood towards adulthood, that you realize that, I hope you realize that there's a lot that you need to learn. You need to grow up. You need to mature. There's many things you need to know. Well, that was true for Israel. As a nation, they were immature. They, they, were, they were ignorant of so many things. They, in a real sense, they were like little children. And God knew that. He knew his people. And so he led them a different way. He led them away from conflict. He led them into a wilderness. He, he led them to a waste place. For it was a place where the Lord then would teach his people much. And in, that's what we're really going to be seeing for the next number of chapters. That we're going to see how little Israel knew and indeed some of the great lessons that God will teach them in this waste place. Now, while they were in Egypt, while they were slaves in Egypt, they saw 
ten mighty plagues. And you will remember that as I was talking about this, one of the great messages, one of the great themes of the book of Exodus is God is making himself known. The covenant faithful Lord is making himself known, yes, to Pharaoh, his, his adversary, Pharaoh, who thinks he's a God. He thinks he's sovereign, equal to any God, even greater than God. And God is making himself known to that Pharaoh. He's making himself known to Egypt. But Israel's right there taking it all in. They underwent some of the plagues. Israel was learning about the Lord, but they've only begun to learn about the Lord. The Lord has so much more to teach them how he's able to take them in a wilderness space and provide for them. What's in a wilderness place? Well, not much. It's, it's a wilderness place, and yet they're going to find out God is able to give them bread Every single day, six days a week, and a double portion on the sixth day to prepare them for the Sabbath. They're going to learn. They don't know that about God. They're going to learn that about God. They're going to learn that God has the ability to open a rock in a dry and thirsty place and pour forth an abundance of water. They're going to learn that God will indeed discipline them when they grumble and murmur against him. And there's just so much that they must learn before they're prepared to enter into the land. It's there that the Lord will also teach them to follow the commands of Moses, their leader, God's appointed leader for them. They're going to experience the Lord's discipline. There will be times when Israel will rebel be disobedient children you you know about that right about disobedience and rebelling against your parents and and then the discipline and instruction of your parents to to correct you in the way that you would learn how to live in God's world you begin to learn from your parents about God who you can't see that's one of the beauties of God's design for the family that through a parent you can see you learn about the Lord they're going to learn about the discipline of the Lord. And he's going to teach them to wage war. Something they're going to have to do. They're going to have to go into the land that God has promised and drive out powerful nations that have walled cities. They're not ready for that, but the Lord will teach them that. He's also going to try their hearts. This is probably one of the most critical things. He's going to try not tempt. God doesn't tempt. What he's going to try, he's going to test their hearts to see if they will worship him alone as the living and true God. And as we will see, and as I've said before, there's a whole lot of Egypt in Israel. We will see, as we pay attention to the text, they brought some of the idols of Egypt with them. They have much to learn. And so the Lord knew his people need to learn these things and much more. And so he led them, not straight up, but he took them on the long route to come to the place that he had promised to give to them. Some applications from this. This may remind you of Saul, not King Saul, but Saul the persecutor who persecuted the church when it was called away. But then after his conversion, you know what the Lord did with him? He sent him into a wilderness 
for two or three years. I, I forget which it is. I think it's three years. Three years, this, this man, he's highly educated. So the best education he could have gotten as a Pharisee in the land of Egypt. And yet there is so much that he doesn't know. And so the Lord takes him to the wilderness to teach him and to prepare him to be the missionary evangelist to the Gentiles. The Lord had a purpose in it. This may also remind us of our own spiritual journey. Remember when you were recently converted? We're so zealous. We're, so, we're, we're probably like the Jews coming out. It's like, oh, let's go to the land. What do you mean we're heading off east? Let's, let's just go up the way. We, we're, we get so gung-ho and, and so enthusiastic, and there's a sense in that's right. We've been liberated from sin. We have been set free from the bondage of Satan. We've been brought to a new Savior, and we've come to understand the majesty and the glory of God and the beauty of what Christ has accomplished to save us from our sins. And sometimes we can be a little bit dangerous. You know, we, we get maybe like a cage stage where we need to be, well, in the wilderness for the while. We need to go to the school of Christ, and God knows that and instructs us. So the Lord led them to protect them. Then, even as the Lord has done with each of us, he's, he's led us along the way. He's protected us. He's, he's brought us to have encounters that matured us. He's brought us into contact with mature brothers and sisters, older ones to disciple us. Some of you have been with the Lord for some time, but can you remember back in those early days and you're talking to whoever God blessed you to have in your life to instruct you and say, oh, no, 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 no. No, no, that's, you, you've got that all wrong. Sit down here. Let's open the scriptures. We all need that. The Lord knows what's in our hearts. He knows the lessons we need to learn. He needs to instruct us. We need to grow in the knowledge of the scriptures. We need to learn more of our Savior. We need to learn what is true doctrine. We need to grow in our sense of discernment, be able to tell truth from error. We need to learn to know who the Lord is. Even now, the Lord knows each one of you. This Lord, this covenant faithful Lord that we're hearing about led Israel thousands of years ago. He has not changed. He's the same today. He knows each one of you intimately. And he is at work in your life leading you. And whether it's a wilderness area or a time of prosperity, the Lord is leading you. He knows the lessons you need to learn. He knows where you're you have strength, and he knows where you have weaknesses, and, and he makes no mistakes in his instruction and in his guiding. Remember what John records in chapter 10, the words of our Savior. They apply right now to this issue. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep. That's so true. God has given us a good shepherd. He knows us. Sheep are dumb. It's just the truth. But our good shepherd knows us, and he is working in us to conform us more to his image. And in some, some sense, that's what we're going to see happen with a whole nation 
uh, a principle of a nation, and many will perish. Many, many will uh, will say they'll fall out. They'll, they'll flunk the school of Christ. But if you are a sheep of the good shepherd who died to save you from your sins, who has redeemed you with his blood that he shed on the cross, he is your good shepherd, and everything that he is doing in your life is for your good because he loves you and he gave himself for you. We have a faithful shepherd who knows his people. Well, let's move on a little more briefly here. I think it's interesting to note the Lord left his people. He led them in orderly ranks. Uh, It's a brief point, but it's still an important point. Look at the end of verse 18. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. It's easy just to read over that, but this is a mass of humanity. You've got you know, fighting men through 600-some thousand, and you have wives and children and elderly and, and hordes of animals, and yet God led them up orderly. This, this, this passage is actually interesting. Translations in our, in, in our English into the English have it in a variety of ways. I think uh, the New King James captures the sense of, well, literally it says, God led the people by order of 50s, which is... It's a military term that, that, that you would order order your, your troops into groups of fifties and thousands and so forth uh, that would each have their commanders that would be responsible and orders would trickle down. Uh, they're, they're not a warring people. They don't know about these things. And yet the Lord is leading them in an orderly manner. Groups of 50, an orderliness they're even called in the text, and it's not always translated this way, they're called the Lord's army. I think sometimes we, it's translated as host and so forth. But literally, this is his army. Uh, they're not an army ready for battle, but yet the Lord is at work. There's an orderliness in their departure. They went up in orderly ranks out of Egypt. Just think about that. These are slaves who have just been set free, and yet their departure was not a panic. It wasn't this, we're free, and then just people running headlong in whatever direction they chose to go. No, the Lord is caring for his people. He's leading them. It wasn't every man for himself. Moses worked with the elders of the tribes because this was a principle that had been established long before that they lived under, that they were the heads of the tribes and breaking out in ranks. We're going to see how that's even fixed even more when we get to chapter 18. But Moses was working amongst this orderliness that was in the tribes and and the father's households because the the orderliness was in the families, even as we sit here today. We look at one another and we see families. We recognize that there's fathers and mothers and children. They belong in that family. And there's an orderliness to the household of God. And even then there was this orderliness as these slaves are leading. They, they fell into ranks in some sense and they marched out in an orderly manner. This should remind us of Moses. Who's Moses? He was a little baby pulled out of the river Nile by the daughter of Pharaoh, and he grew up in the household of Pharaoh. He received the best instruction of Pharaoh, and that would have included a host of things, not the least of which would have been 
military strategy, how to organize men and put them into troops and have an order and a structure. So Moses has been equipped and Moses has organized these people into troops so that they leave out in an orderly manner. They, they, they lead as men who are going to war, though they don't know anything about war, and yet the Lord is already working. They went out with their carts and their wagons carrying the wealth of Egypt. I came across in one of the commentaries, um, somebody did some calculation based on what's contributed for the tabernacle, and uh, the weight of the gold was, was phenomenal. I think it was something like six tons of gold. And yet all this, all the, the wealth of Egypt, all the livestock that the Lord has preserved, all the blessing that the Lord has given them, they're going out in an orderly manner. Moses, the one who's so reluctant, Lord, I can't speak. Well, I'll have your brother speak. You see Moses growing, and he's organized the people of God, and the Lord is leading them out. The Lord works through means. Moses is his means. Moses is the one the Lord has instructed and set over the people to lead them. Moses is, is a, a Christ type. He's, he pictures and reflects Christ to the church of that age. And they went out in an orderly manner, a good order, because you know what? God is a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. And he picked the right man, Moses. Some application here. How much more are the people of God organized underneath King Jesus? Well, think about that, but we have an orderliness. Um, the Lord is at work under this. He's, he's trained us as a host, as it were, and he's instructed us in spiritual warfare. Paul writes these things. Paul gives us instructions in Ephesians 6 that we have a spiritual armor that we are to wear. But, but he tells us that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That is, they're not for physical war. Our greatest battle is a spiritual war. It's, it's a battle that is most often waged within because of our flesh. We're at war with our flesh, but there's an orderliness to us, and, and God has equipped us with weapons to engage in that warfare. And he says these are powerful weapons, powerful enough for pulling down strongholds. God has equipped us with the sword of the Spirit. Jesus was in the wilderness, just like Egypt's in the, I mean, Israel's in the wilderness. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ took on the greatest adversarial. The seed of the woman stood head to head, toe to toe, with the seed of the serpent, even the serpent himself. And he took the sword of the Lord, as Hebrews says, sharper than any two-edged sword, powerful, a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. God has given us his word, and he has given us prayer. These are powerful weapons that the Lord has given to us, and he has given us a, a leadership structure. He has set elders over us to lead us, to guide us, to teach us, to mentor us. We are so blessed. I have, I'll use the word, I have boasted God's blessing in this church that we have such competent elders who are willing week by week to take their turn to stand before you, this flock, 
and instruct you, to, to take the giftedness of being able to teach that the Lord has given to them, to teach you. And, and, and the teaching is to an end. It's not just to fill up space or take up time. The, the Lord is using this man. The Lord is at work teaching us that we would be an orderly flock in the larger body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, let us pray that the Lord would keep his church in good order and on the front lines for King Jesus. Amen? Well, thirdly, the Lord led his people to keep an old oath. Again, it's, it's, just, it's just tucked in here. You know, we, we should read our Old Testament, particularly our Old Testament. We should read all the scripture carefully. We, we should read it asking the Holy Spirit to instruct us. But there's these things, even as we just saw, the orderliness. But the very next verse, and we're told, that, and Moses, remember he's responsible. I don't know that Moses literally is the one that did this. But Moses is the leadership, made sure it happened. That's the way orderliness and structure takes place. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he, that is Joseph, had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, Surely God will visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Parents, have you ever had the unhappy experience of promising your children that you're going to do something? And we're flawed, right? And you forget about it. You know, maybe it was a certain event on a certain day. And, and then that day rolls around, and the children haven't forgotten, have they? And they will remind you of the promise that you made. And, and then when you hear it, you, you feel... I'll just put it this way. You feel busted. It's like, ah, I didn't make preparation. I forgot all about it. Ah. It wasn't because of your meanness or uh, any fault other than just the forgetfulness that we have of, as humanity. And yet when we look at verse 19, this is incredible. Moses took up the bones of Joseph with him, for he, Joseph, had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath. This was 400-some years ago. 400 years ago, this, this oath, as Joseph was dying, he had the men of Israel of that day, their leadership. Things were orderly then, and he was going to be embalmed, and he said, I know that the promise of God is true, that he is going to deliver us. This is what he told our father Abraham. He is going to bring you up out of here. And when you go, don't leave my bones in Egypt. They belong in the promised land. They belong in Israel. And the men made an oath that this would happen. And it's quite incredible to think about this, that this orderly band that's leaving there was not one living soul that had promised Joseph to do this. Those men who made that promise are long since gone. They too rest in their graves. And yet we find that Joseph was being carried up. Joseph had the men swear a solemn oath at that time that they would take his body. And indeed it must be that they have told and retold this. I think that that oath... The faith of Joseph in the word and the promise of God becomes, became something that was told to Israel. It's very likely that everybody in Israel had heard about 
Joseph bones, that God's going to visit us. And Joseph bones are to be taken up. And when that time came, it took place. I don't know that if, you know, one generation before they die, they had a group of younger men make the promise to keep the promise that their fathers had made. We're not told about this, but what we find is that the children of Israel, under Moses' leaderships, are faithful to keep the oath that was made 400 years ago. We have a hard time remembering to keep an oath four weeks later. And to be faithful to it. And Moses, as the leader of the people, made sure the promise was kept. I, I don't think people literally were carrying like a coffin. But it was in one of the wagons. That's how they took up Jacob. It was a, a tremendous entourage. Jacob was taken up and buried back in the land of promise. And Joseph says, I want my bones placed up there and buried with my family. And just as was promised, it took place. The time has come to pass. They're leaving Egypt. And they took Joseph's embalmed body and they took it with them to bury it and return it to the land of God's promise to await a greater promise, the resurrection of the dead. That was the hope of the people of God already, that ultimately there would be a day when the seed of the woman the Messiah, what they knew about him, when, there would, when he would come and he would bring the resurrection of life to those who believed in him, though they didn't understand it or describe it perhaps as we do today, they had that hope. And, and Joseph wanted his body to be in the land of promise when his blessed Redeemer came and called him. He wanted to be there to go up, as it were, with his, his forefathers, that they would go up all together. And God has kept his promise. And now they are leaving. And Joseph's body goes with them. Now, this is mentioned here. And then there's not another word about Joseph's body until Joshua 24. Joshua 24, 32. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, under a new leader, a whole other generation that's been schooled in the wilderness... They enter the land. God goes before them. They conquer the land. And we come all the way to chapter 24. It's late in, in Joshua's leadership. We're told in verse 32 that Joseph's bones were placed. They were buried in Shechem, a tract of land that Jacob, Joseph's brother, father, had purchased from Hamor for a 100 pieces of silver. That's remarkable. Isn't it? I mean, this is really quite stunning. And it's just, here's this reference. And then you're going to have to read and read and read and read and read to get all the way to Joshua 24 to find out, okay, they've been keeping up with the body of Joseph all this time. This oath that they would be carried out. They've kept up with his body through all that they've gone through. Uh, and they, then they buried Joseph's bones in the place where his father had purchased a piece of land, a place to bury Again, reminded of the Lord, L-O-R-D, the faithful covenant-keeping Lord. Joseph believed in him, and he assured that the people of God would have this constant reminder, the promise of God. 
and concerning even his bodies, and eventually he's laid to rest with his fathers. Oaths and vows and promises are important to keep. This is an application for us. It is important that we keep them. We should not be quick to make vows, oaths, or promises. We, they, there's only some things that are it's worthy to do that with, and we should take them seriously and carefully, and, and that the Lord would enable us to, to keep those oaths and vows and promises. Listen to me. Nearly every one of you hearing this right now have made vows and promises and oaths our solemn vows as church members the vows we've made to our spouses many of you vows when you brought your children obedience to the Lord to receive the sign and the seal of his covenant you made vows at that time Some of you are men who have made vows at the time of your ordination. How often do we reflect on those things? I'm not proposing that we need to carry something around like the body of Joseph to remind us of promises. But we should not forget our vows. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 5, he says, remember your vows. When you appear before the Lord in worship and don't be late to pay them for God takes no pleasure in fools. We need to keep our oaths and vows. Indeed, let us pray to the Lord who keeps all his promises that he will enable us to keep our vows. And indeed, as we're praying to forgive us for the times we have violated those vows, when we've not kept them perfectly, as surely we all have failed. And let us remember the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ covers all our sins, including these sins. For he was faithful to the Father to keep the covenant commitment he made to the Father before the foundation of the earth, that he would enter into the world, that he would come as the Redeemer, even willing to drink the cup of the dregs of God's wrath as he went to the cross and laid down his life to rescue and redeem a people, which was the promise of God made in the garden that there would be a time when the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, and that was the promise that Christ made. He kept his vow unto death and it enables us to keep our vows as well oh bless the Lord oh my soul for such a savior who kept a vow even unto death for our salvation well third fourthly probably the one thing that people think most of when they read this passage the Lord made his presence visible to his people. In verse 20, Moses reports that the Lord led his people. He tells them where they went. So they, they took their journey from Succoth, that was the first stop, and they camped at Etham in the edge of the wilderness. We don't know where Etham is. But what we can see is that um, it's probably near where the Suez Canal lies now. They're, they're heading south, even southeast. 
away from where they might have gone. And, and it's clear, though, from the text that this is not a confused band of frightened people wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. Later on, we'll learn that that's what Pharaoh thinks. But they're not. They're not in panic. The Lord is leading them. And the Lord makes it clear at this point that the Lord reveals his presence to Israel in a very clear way. He provides a pillar that is always visible. And from now on, until they enter into the land as promised, he will go before them. And the Lord, verse 21, went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night from before the people. He gave them a visible and constant reminder that they were never alone. You might sit here today, believer, and say, man, I'd love to have that. But remember, this is the church in its infancy. They've just come out of Egypt. They've been slaves. They know so little about the Lord. There's so much of Egypt in them. And, and so God stoops. He condescends. He gives them this very visible picture. You know, the way we understand the language that describes this pillar, that there's probably the fire is always burning in the in this center of this pillar. This is not like some rain cloud drifting about. This is something supernatural. And that the fire was probably always in there, and thus the smoke. And during the day when the sun's brilliance is there, you see the smoke. But at night, then the brilliance of the fire in the center is visible. We're reminded of who God is. He's a consuming fire. He is holy. And yet he stooped to go with a stubborn stupid, sinful people. He went with them. He went before them. He led them very visibly. He was with them in this cloud. What we see in, in this picture is something of a, the impenetrability of God and understanding. I mean, there's, there's a mystery in here, the, the fire and what's within the fire. And perhaps we remind of... of Isaiah, when he sees the Lord arrayed in glory and he falls before him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Yes, this same God, this holy God is with him. This, this pillar of cloud, this is going to be with him in, in, in the danger of becoming so familiar. God is with them. This visible presentation of God going with them. Though he was not visible, he was concealed from their sinful eyes, nevertheless, the Lord made it known to his people that he was with them, and that his promise that he was to be with them, he proved it. Notice that one final point. Look at verse 22 again. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire from night, by night from before the people. It was always there. Always always there they never needed to doubt where the lord was he was with them he went before them we'll see that when it was time to move he made it clear when it was time to stop a camp he made it clear and, and there was no on again off again there was no intermittency to this it was permanent and was fixed throughout all these years he's always present he's hovering as it were above them well let's conclude then with this. First, let us understand today the Lord is always with us. The covenant faithful Lord is always with his people. Not hovering above us, 
not a, not a cloud. It's, it's much greater than that. He is within us. The Father has sent the Holy Spirit through the Son into our very being. I will tell you, this, this is something I, I've, many things I've meditated on, that I've meditated upon the most. And every time I take that time and start meditating about it, it blows my mind. How does an infinite holy God dwell in this finite sinful man? But he does for each and every one of you who have been washed with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit entered into your heart and he dwells with you. The infinite God in, in some mysterious way, but truly so, dwells within us. Not hovering over us in a cloud, but indeed is within us. And Jesus made this possible on the cross. Our sins were paid for by him and washed away so that God's dwelling place now is within men and women and boys and girls who have called upon the name of the Lord. He is really more with us than he was with them. This is a vital application that we should not forget. But here is another. Remember how the Lord took Israel not directly to Canaan? He led them by a route they didn't expect. Our lives are often the same way. They're pretty much that way. We think of our life, we kind of have a map, kind of think of our plan, you know, where we're going to go. Proverbs 16:9, man makes plans in his heart, but the Lord directs his steps. The thing that I want to have us to learn is, my friends, you can always trust the Lord. No matter what route he's taking you, you can always trust the Lord. He knows best. He knows his people. That's where we started out. He knows his people. And he always goes with us. And the way of the Lord, it is a, it's a way with a purpose. And he doesn't tell us up front, but it's as we go in this world, which is much a wilderness, he's leading us and instructing us along the way. And in the process, he is making himself known to us, and he is making us more conformed to the image of his son. There is always a reason to our Father's ways. And we can trust his providence. And I'll remind you of the quote from Flavel, John Flavel, that some of you have heard God's providences. Like Hebrew, it's best read backwards. You read Hebrew right to left, not left to right. God's providence was like, the, the point of Flavel saying was that, that we best understand God's providence is when we, we look back. And many of you know that. You look back and go, ah. Oh. Or how many times have we gone, wow. Praise God. Praise be to God, and that should be our response. We should look for his hand of providence. At the end of our day, in our, in our closing uh, moments as we fall asleep on our pillow, we should reflect upon the day. Look for the hand of God's providence because it has been there. He has led us in the little things and in the big things. He is always with us. He is within us to lead us and guide us. He's working in us. He's teaching us, him, teaching us. And we can be sure of this, that the Lord 
knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust for punishment in the day of judgment. 2 Peter 2. And that brings us back to where we begin. The headlines. I see them. How do we understand them? I hope that you will understand them this way. God is at work. He is with his people. He is with his church. Jesus has promised, I will never, I will never leave you nor forsake you, for I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let us pray. O oh Lord, our God, these are marvelous truths and wonderful lessons. We need to hear them. We need to be reminded of them. Lord, even as, as we walk along together as this orderly band, Lord, help us to remind one another. As we were taught just a sermon or two ago, that we're so prone to forget things. And we, we need reminders of what is true. We thank you for this Lord's Day. We pray, Lord, that you would help us use this Lord's Day and every Lord's Day to, to be together and to fellowship and to meditate on these things and to remind one another these truths. Uh, when we talk in the midst of the week and perhaps one is discouraged, Lord, as your people stir us up to remind one another of these truths, you are with us always. You understand us. And you are ordering our days. Yea, you are king over all of creation. And the nations, as our elder reminded us in the prayer, they're just dust on the scales. But our God reigns over the nations. And he even reigns in our little insignificant, mundane lives. Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.